Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. Again, this week, Hebrews 10, we'll be finishing up the chapter today, beginning with verse 32. Last week, you recall, was all about warnings. Most of us hate warnings. Though they're sometimes necessary for our life and even for our faith, most of us hate warnings. At the same time, no one has ever given us more warnings than our moms. And we love our moms. You see, there's a difference between warnings mandated by some bureaucrat which tend to be impersonal and rigid and completely negative and even absurd, and mom's fervent warnings that are personal and driven by love and mixed with a big dose of encouragement. Today we see that God's warnings are more like mom's fervent cautions than they are like government-mandated labels. God's warnings come with instruction, they come with encouragement to us. Actually, the book of Hebrews, as you may have noticed by now, has many serious warnings, perhaps more than any other New Testament book. But they're typically accompanied with loving words of exhortation. A great example of that is Hebrews 6. Some of you remember Hebrews 6. It says that it will be impossible for those who fall away from the faith to be restored. Now that's a mind-boggling, knee-buckling warning. Immediately following that strong warning, we hear this word of encouragement. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. Encouragement. So this morning, on the heels of last week's severe warnings, we're going to hear something akin to that encouragement, I think. Let me read it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, down to the end of the chapter. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded... You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. And this text, there are several strands of thought woven together, but let me just boil it down to two simple truths. The first one's this. Following Jesus will cost you. Following Jesus will cost you. You know, one of life's most valuable and uh, sometimes costly lessons is be sure to read the fine print. We learned early on that the real cost of things, all the negative things, will probably be hidden in the very fine print at the bottom of the page, hoping that you won't notice. Such is not the case in regard to following Christ Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' very first body of instruction, he informed his hearers about persecution. 
And that caution was repeatedly issued throughout his earthly ministry. And so here in Hebrews 10, there's no masking of the reality. Following Jesus will cost you. That's not just a theory set forth here. This is the reality uh, being lived out by these original readers of the book. We know from the whole tenor of the book that these readers were Jewish. But here we see that they were not Jews who were be, uh, considering becoming Christians. Rather, these were Jews who had already publicly professed faith in Christ. And now, following Jesus was costing them dearly. You see, for a Gentile back then, to profess Christ was not too difficult, frankly. The Greeks and the Romans had many, many gods. So what's one more? Worship Jesus too. It only became difficult for Gentiles when people realized that by confessing Jesus, they were denying all the other gods. Consequently, the early Christians came to be thought of as atheists. Isn't that interesting? Atheists. They denied the pantheon of gods. Oh, but for the Jew to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, that was quite another story. That was not easy at all. It cut him off from his friends. It probably ruined his business. It may have got him uh, ex, uh, 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 kicked out of his uh, family and, uh, and uh, cut off from the inheritance. That explains the extreme poverty in the church in Jerusalem. You remember how Paul went out to the Gentile churches and collected money to send back to the mother church in Jerusalem because they were hurting so bad. We've spoken often of these Jewish believers facing persecution. Well, here's where we get that information from this text. But interestingly, nothing is said here that indicates that their trouble was unusual. This seems to accurately describe what Jesus promised his disciples all along, that to follow him will cost you dearly. So look at the details of some of the costs they were paying. Verses 32 and 33 describe some personal suffering, being confronted in some contest of suffering. We don't quite know what that was. Being publicly insulted and humiliated. Publicly facing sufferings and persecution. And then in verse 33 and 34, we have described some suffering that came about by their association with one another. They stood by other believers who were mistreated and imprisoned, and as a result, their property was confiscated. This, by the way, is a common trick of the evil one, to divide and conquer. Villainize a few outspoken Christians, and then punish those few who would stand up for them, thus getting many Christians to turn away from their brothers, separate themselves. Paul knew about this tactic. He wrote to young Timothy, don't be ashamed of me because I'm Christ's prisoner. He was in jail. Remember how he said of his first trial, nobody showed up to support him. Of all the Christians Paul administered to, nobody showed up to support him. This still happens today. Think how concerned we are sometimes to not be associated with some other Christians whose views we think uh, are embarrassing. Oh, but to the credit of these Jewish believers, they stuck with their brothers and sisters no matter what the cost. And according to verse 34, it cost them dearly, but they did it with joy. Folks, this is true discipleship. Being connected to the body of Christ 
is not optional. We've acted as if it were in America, but the Lord knows no such discipleship. Following Jesus in the company of his people will cost us dearly. Throughout this book, it may have been easy for us to criticize these readers. How could they consider turning away from Christ just because the pressure was on? But here we see that they had already endured much more than we have. They understood what we often ignore, that following Jesus will cost you. That's the first truth we learned, but it brings us to our second point, which is simply this. True faith doesn't quit. True faith doesn't quit. I recently watched the story of Marine Sergeant Dakota Meyer. He's the first living recipient of the Medal of Honor from the Afghan War. When a nearby patrol was ambushed and pinned down by the Taliban, and there was no air support coming to their rescue, Sergeant Meyer got in a Humvee and began to run the gauntlet under heavy enemy fire, the same enemy fire that had them all pinned down. And again and again, for several hours, he he drove this Humvee in to pull people out to safety. All in all, he pulled 36 other soldiers out alive and the bodies of four of his fellow Marines. For this action, for his absolute insane refusal to quit until everyone was out, he was awarded the nation's highest honor. Unfortunately, in spite of such tales of heroic perseverance, the truth is we live in a world of quitters, don't we? People get bored. They quit. They get tired. Don't feel like it anymore. They quit. They don't like the working conditions. They don't like the boss. They don't like the pay. They quit. Married couples get tired of working out the problems. I'm weary of it all. I quit. Pastors get tired of dealing with people who complain, and so they quit themselves. (laughs) More and more quitting, which was once thought dishonorable, has become a live option when anything in life is not to our liking. And that includes our faith. Not producing the blessings we expected. So we quit. But according to our text this morning, heroic perseverance ought to be the norm for those who believe in Jesus, for true faith never quits. Now Christians used to speak about not quitting It was called the perseverance of the saints. Unfortunately, that language has been largely replaced in some circles by talk of the eternal security of the believer. Perhaps you're familiar with those terms. The perseverance of the saints and the eternal security of the believer. Uh, Many, many say, well, it's the same thing. Actually, it's not the same thing. Indeed, the difference is quite profound. The one emphasizes, emphasizes our rights. We are guaranteed security of our salvation no matter what. The other speaks of our responsibility. We are called to persevere to the end no matter what. No matter what the cost. And it seems that when we weigh having our rights over against acknowledging our responsibilities, we seem to always want our rights, don't we? And the responsibilities can go begging. 
So we end up with people saying things like, no matter what you do, your salvation is secure. Except that the Bible says, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Another thing about perseverance, you never outgrow your need for it. Somehow we've gotten the idea that in life our faith will someday arrive at a plateau where it will all be over and easy. We come to think at that point we will be able to just sit back and have a retired faith. Just wait for the glory. No more struggles. Such is not the case. As our older saints know, struggles and temptations confront us till our last day. But true faith doesn't quit. Consider these Jewish believers in our text. Look how much they had already suffered. Surely it was somebody else's turn now, wasn't it? No, still they're the ones in the arena. They're the ones being warned. They're the ones being called to persevere. You see, the battle isn't over until it's over. So don't quit too soon. Now, this discussion about perseverance is necessarily connected with our understanding of what true faith is. In fact, our understanding of true faith bolsters our view of and our, our, our need for perseverance. So let's think about faith for a few moments here. Generally, when Christians think about faith, it's always the opposite of works. Faith, not works, right? We get that from the Apostle Paul's writings in Romans and Galatians. And it's true. This is the heart of the gospel. We are saved by grace that we receive as a gift, not by works that we earn. We're saved by the merits of Christ, not the merits of our own labor. But when we come to this passage in Hebrews, faith has a different word set opposite it. Here, the opposite of faith is not works. Here, the opposite of faith is to shrink back. To shrink back. You see it there in verse 38? My righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. In fact, here in verses 35 to 39, that's the thrust of all the words used to describe our responsibility as Christ's disciples. Let me pick them out for you. Don't throw away your confidence. You need to persevere. Do the will of God. Live by faith. Don't shrink back. Believe. And you see, that's the true picture of faith. Oh, this doesn't deny what Paul taught. It's still true that we cannot earn our salvation by our works. All the merit is Christ's. It's a gift. But believing and resting and trusting in Christ, realizing that he's our only hope, that kind of faith is expressed in obedience and perseverance and continued confidence in him and courage that overcomes our fear and the compulsion to press on to holiness. And if the, that evidence of faith is not present, the validity of our faith may be in question. William, William Tyndale explained that all he did and suffered was not deserving of the reward. But it was the way to the reward. I like the statement of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Faith, thus resting, receiving and resting on Christ in his righteousness, 
Faith is the alone instrument of justification. We're saved by faith, nothing else. But it goes on. Yet faith is never alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. We're saved by faith alone, but faith never comes alone. When God saves us, he grants us perseverance. True faith doesn't quit. Now, the writer of Hebrews makes this point by, uh, by looking at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You see that uh, set apart in your Bible probably as a quotation, the end of verse 37 and 38. This is noteworthy, for this is the passage that the Apostle Paul repeat, uh, 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 appealed to and quoted from when he said, The just shall live by faith. So what did that mean to Habakkuk? Well, let's talk about Habakkuk a minute. Habakkuk lived in a time of violence and injustice, a time of crisis and testing for God's people. Habakkuk began his prophecy by crying out to God, How long, O Lord, how long? How long are we going to have to wait? How long are you going to put up with this, Lord? No good answer. So later he makes a second inquiry, asking God, in effect, aren't you going to stop this wickedness, God? Aren't you going to punish these evil people? Habakkuk was getting rather impatient with God. After all, God is holy, is he not? How can he let this go on? But God addressed Habakkuk, and he said, judgment will come at the appointed time you wait. The wicked thinks he's something, all full of himself. But my righteous ones will live by faith. And you see what kind of faith Habakkuk was talking about? Faith that perseveres in the face of evil. Faith that keeps on believing when it looks like God's not keeping his promises. Faith that doesn't turn back or turn aside no matter what the cost. Faith that waits on the Lord. We would actually use the term faithfulness there, wouldn't we? Which means characteristically full of faith. Make no mistake. In this passage, the idea of merit is not in view. That's what Paul was talking about. We're saved by grace, by faith, not by works, not by our merit. But here the issue is, whether you really believe it or not, whether you really believe enough to persevere and not shrink back for for true faith, does not quit. All reminds me of a little chorus we used to sing. We've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord, trusting in his holy word. He's never failed us yet. Oh, 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 we can't turn back. We've come this far by faith. I'm sure you've all heard the public public service announcement, that line that says, Friends don't let friends drive drunk. Well, this section of Hebrews last week and this week seems to make an even more important point. We could put it this way. Believers don't let believers walk away. 
Believers don't let other believers walk away. Do you ever wrestle with what you should do when you see some fellow Christian being tempted to turn away from the Lord? Should we pat them on the back and come alongside and try to encourage them? Or should we confront them and stick our finger in their face and warn them severely? What should we do? Well, we might take note of what the author of Hebrews did. In the previous section, he warned them severely. But in this section, he commended them for their faithfulness. He encouraged them to continue. And he came alongside them, identifying with them, saying, Wait a minute, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who believe and are saved. Folks, this is what the good shepherd, the Lord, does. He points out in Psalm 23 that his rod, that's the tool of protection, and his staff, that's the tool of correction, that together they comfort us. They comfort us. And so we are called to warn and encourage one another for believers don't let believers walk away from the Lord. And walking away, quitting, is a danger being discussed here as people realize that following Jesus is costly. But true faith perseveres. It never quits. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's easy to talk about faith. It's easy to talk about believing. It's easy to admire those who with heroic perseverance, have given their lives to you, but in the trenches day by day, it's even easier to quit. And every one of us has a a quitter's heart. We live in 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 a culture that doesn't like to persevere through hard times. We live in a church environment in this country that is looking for good feelings and easy discipleship. And yet your word, Lord, confronts us that it's not unusual that these people suffered because following you will cost us, but that it would be unusual for those that you have redeemed to turn away and abandon you, for true faith doesn't quit. Oh, Lord, make these things not just truths in our head or in our minds, but seal them to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you find your bulletin, there's